Thanks for listening to In Good Faith. We love our listeners, we love to hear from them, and we'd love to meet you in person. The In Good Faith production team will be at the upcoming Faith Matters Restore Gathering, October 7th and 8th at the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City. And we'd love a chance to connect with you in person. Check out the program and buy tickets at faithmatters.org. See you there. I have an eight-year-old daughter and she asked me, what is God? The best answer is we don't know. And then you can keep thinking and you can find out. The idea of God is light or God is a mantra. And then you have a much more direct experience of divinity. And that's where I would think something like the kingdom of God is within you. You just suddenly have that waking up moment where you realize that whatever you've been looking for is actually right here, right now. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today we have a special episode we've been calling Characteristics of the Divine. We're exploring a few of the ways that people of faith from around the world encounter and experience divinity. Our personal experiences with God teach us who God is and teach us who we are in relation to God. Religions around the world have different ways of characterizing the divine. God might be a single all-powerful force beyond personality and the physical. God might be an embodied entity with desires and plans of his or her or their own. God might be able to transmute between a variety of these states. But for many people, no matter their doctrine, God allows us to interact with and learn about who God is. And in turn, this relationship teaches us who we are. We've gathered together a few different voices for this episode, including several folks who emailed or called us with their experience of God. We love hearing from our audience, and so we wanted to share these with the rest of you listening. We'll also hear from A. Helwa, the Muslim poet and author of From Darkness Into Light, Buddhist publisher Samuel Berkholtz, who wrote a graphic novel about his near-death experience, and La Tao in Wisconsin, who works for a Christian campus ministry group, InterVarsity. But first we hear from Abhishek Ghosh, a religious studies professor and director of the Institute for Vaishnava Studies, in Gainesville, Florida. Although the catch-all term Hinduism is regularly used here in the U.S., what outsiders call Hinduism is really a collection of many religious traditions developed over millennia on the Indian subcontinent. One major group among those is Vaishnavism. This term refers to any tradition that reveres Vishnu and his incarnations. Dr. Ghosh spoke to our producer, Heather Bigley, over Zoom and introduced us to two helpful metaphors for thinking about the divine. In the ancient texts, you have descriptions of Vishnu where the sun and the moon are his eyes, right? The rivers are his veins. Uh, the trees and the grass are the hairs on his body. The mountains are his bones. The ocean is the belly. In Vedic and post-Vedic culture, everything is personified. In fact, anthropomorphism is seen as a good thing. Very similar to uh, Americans having names for their cars. Mm, yes. Uh, in, in Vedic tradition, you see everything as a person, something endowed with personality. Uh, and that way, you elicit a particular response to the world around you. You don't see it as dead matter that you need to lord over. Everything is alive in various ways, and not all life is human life. And the one string that pervades through everything is Vishnu, and Vishnu is also the deity of preservation and protection. So earth preservers or protectors are Vaishnavas. That forms the bulk of Hinduism today. And so you have an incarnation of Vishnu who is a turtle or a tortoise, mm. Kurma. You have an incarnation of Vishnu who is a wild boar. And so... You know, the experience of deity is quite composite. You can experience an incarnation. And, you know, it's, it's a, once you experience it, it's, it is a form of a communion, 
mm-hmm. with the DAG. And different people I've seen focus on different aspects of the DAT depending on what life situation they're going in, right? So I've had somebody, say, for example, uh, going through financial trouble and some upheavals in life worship the turtle, the tortoise incarnation, because, you know, that incarnation brings stability to slow. And uh, then there's the man line incarnation and people facing danger or people going on long journeys would remember remember or meditate on that incarnation. It boils down to the culture that we grow up in. And in India, uh, I went to a Catholic school, about one-fourth of the kids were Muslims. In that sense, we grew up in a very interfaith environment. And you've been to India. If you go to Calcutta today, there will be probably more Hindus at St. Paul's Cathedral on Christmas than Christians. I was there for Easter, and it was interesting. Like, I was in Delhi, but it was fascinating. Like, everybody knows about Easter, and everybody's doing something for Easter, you know? Everybody celebrates each other's festival. And that's that's the kind of the raw experience of divinity through my culture that I had as a kid growing up. But we did not let these labels affect the kind of relationships we had each, with each other or be curious about how differently they experienced whatever they experienced through the traditions. And so that informed some of my early presuppositions, if I kind of put some academic language to it. Before I found myself in an American classroom teaching the world's religions, so that's been both a personal and a professional journey. And at the same time, through my reading of scripture, through my own personal meditation, I have experienced divinity in at least three forms. And sometimes I like to kind of think through things in my head. And the best way to explain these three forms is through a metaphor. I used to live in Hyde Park, Chicago, uh, when I was going to school at the University of Chicago. And, you know, it's a wonderful place to be. I didn't realize that my house was right next to a rail track. Whenever the metro would come in and out, there would be at least three phases to experiencing the train. Sometimes on a foggy morning, you would hear a gentle light vibration. And, you know, and you would probably hear like the, the ringing of a bell in a distance. And then when the train was passing right next to the house, you would actually see the train. It wasn't just light or sound anymore. It was the experience of seeing a, you know, like a machine on tracks. There was a third kind of an experience where you didn't see the train, but you experienced the train is when you were inside the train. And I like to think of whatever little experience I have of what I call the divine to be in those three forms. You know, growing up, we were curious because I have an eight-year-old daughter and she asked me, what is God? And I think, you know, the best answer is we don't know. And then you can keep thinking and you can find out, right? And so the idea of God is light or God is a mantra is pretty much like saying, you know, God is that light from the train that's going up uh, or the sound uh, of the train. And then you have a much more direct experience of divinity, Right? And that's where I would think something like the kingdom of God is within you. Right? You, you just suddenly have this satori, that uh, waking up moment, where you realize that whatever you've been looking for uh, is actually right here, right now. And I've had that experience. I just you know, kind of woke up on one morning and woke up. And uh, it was very interesting. I think I figured out the purpose of life, because that was a big question all through my 20s. And I suddenly realized that there is there is no purpose as such. Life is the purpose, right? That you you suddenly become aware of this presence within you, the spark of consciousness that can move matter around, and that must have its own source. I did not make it, and so that's I think a much more direct experience of divinity, like the train passing down your window. And then there is the experience of the divine as the beloved. In Sanskrit, these three experiences are called Brahman, which is the diffused presence, 
Paramatman, which is a more kind of concrete presence within, and Bhagavan, which is the manifestation of the divine in a person, in a personality. So going through Catholic school, that manifestation of the divine as a person was both Krishna and Jesus Christ, because my family were Vaishnavas, and I went to school and, you know, and saw that they were worshiping Jesus. So I, I thought I had to pick and choose. It was an interesting schooling experience because we had teachers telling us Hindu kids that, oh, Hindus worship monkeys and trees and, you know, you're not very civilized and that kind of stuff. And I bought into it mm. and I thought, okay, and, you know, what they're saying, and I was nine, I said, what they're saying is the most reasonable thing. And uh, like, how do I convert? Because that's what they wanted me to do. And my grandfather kind of spoke to me and said, you can convert to whatever you want, but explore everything. Get to know, you know, don't go by somebody else's words. Uh, see what works for you. And after that, if you want to convert to being Christian, Muslim, Martian, whatever, you know, <laughs> that's your business. Uh, whatever brings you your answers and your peace. And so and that's where I literally started my exploration. I was very young. I realize now, but, you know, I, I always had this strong existential quotient. And so growing up in a missionary school, I heard all of the critiques of Hinduism and I wanted out. For years, I did what I did, not because it was a Hindu thing, but because I wanted to experiment. And last couple of years, I did an experiment where in the month of Ramadan, I would fast for a month from sunrise to sunset. And I used that time to dive deep into the Quran, not because I wanted to become a Muslim, but I wanted to experience what other Muslims are experiencing. And I wanted to go in depth and understand the mind of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as much as I could. And that, to me, gave the same experience as the divine I have in my Hindu tradition, except it's a different flavor. And my parents were like, why are you torturing yourself like this? Why are you doing this? Who asked you to, are you, are you in love with a Muslim girl? I was like, no, I am trying to do this because I think that this is a method that worked for a lot of people. They experienced something out of it. If, it. if it wasn't effective, why would people do it? And so I want to try out uh, these experiments to see if I experience the same thing. And I think... You know, one of the things that is missing in today's intellectual systems education is this uh, dimension of subjective science. Mahatma Gandhi calls, called himself a spiritual scientist. He said, my life is my laboratory, right? And this idea doesn't go to Gandhi. It's much, much older. Uh, and it's in the heart of the Hindu tradition to see what works for you, to keep, you know, experimenting being a lifelong student of the truth, because the truth will never fully reveal itself. In the foothills of the Himalayas in India, you have a very specific kind of a deer. The musk deer is only kind of native to that particular region. And the male musk deer lives a very sad life. Like male peacocks have their feathers, these male deer have something growing in their navels as the deer hits puberty, he starts getting a very pleasant smell from somewhere and he doesn't know where it's coming from. And so all his adolescence, this deer goes from, you know, smelling from tree to tree, from animal to animal, almost gets itself killed from time to time till one day it realizes that the fragrance is coming from his own belly. <laughs> there is not much to seek, not much to do. And all he needs to do is sit down and relax. <laughs> and so the Upanishads say that each one of us have a certain moment in our lives when we wake up to the possibility of something beyond the daily grind. And that is the beginning of the experience of divine. It usually comes with an existential crisis. Sometimes there is depression where what we experience is not it, right? You know, I've graduated, I've gotten a job, I've gotten my partner, I've saved up for my retirement, now what? Yeah, is this all? 
I thought I would be happier. I thought I would feel all of these different things and I don't feel them. People don't distinguish between relief and cure. The things that they seek out, a job, you know, a partner, that educational degree, that bank balance, whatever it is, those fall under the category, in my opinion, uh, the category of relief. That we are suffering in the world and we want some relief. And people tell us that if you do these things, you'll get relief. But relief from a certain kind of suffering, and relief is not cure. Cure is something totally different. And to get the cure, we have to look inside. If you don't find your mask, you haven't found the cure, right? And once you have the cure, the relief may or may not be to your liking. Life will go on and you will need those things. But you won't be affected by the good or the bad. And to me, that is the most profound personal experience of divinity. That was Abhishek Ghosh in Gainesville, Florida's Institute for Vaishnava Studies. His metaphor of the train is something we keep thinking about around here. When I interviewed our next guest, that train metaphor was interesting to compare to the idea of God as a parent, something Lot Tao writes about in her just-published book, Learning Our Names, Asian American Christians on Identity, Relationships, and Vocation, from InterVarsity Press. The book is a group effort from Asian American adults speaking to the next generation, offering counsel and support to young people who may face challenges in reconciling their multiple identities with each other as Americans, often as children of immigrants, and as Christians. We had La read to us from her book to start the interview. Though we feel we lack perfect parental love, we are not without love in our lives. God's abounding love is real. Along with the people God puts in our lives, God can meet the emotional needs that some of our parents have not been able to provide for us. God expresses love both through actions and words. Our Heavenly Father will never abandon us. God's love will never waver when we fail or make mistakes. God knows us and delights in us. God wants to be with us. That is true for us, and it is true for our parents whether they have chosen God or not. They may be parents to us, but to God they are like children. God loves us, and God loves our parents too. Some people have complicated relationships with their parents or like their relationship with their parents doesn't look as loving as maybe what we might see from other cultures. And so some people have a hard time seeing God as father or a very parental loving way. Um, So that aspect of God can be difficult for some people to grasp if they never experienced that in their own lives. So that's still like something that we see today too with some people. Uh, We still felt like this was an important topic for us to discuss. We, We talk a lot about God as father Um, Not very much about God as a mother, but there are uh, characteristics of God as a mother. You know, we talk about those things. I think sometimes we don't really know what that really looks like for us as Christians when when we think about God in that way, if we don't experience it in our own lives. What does that mean to you when you think of God as father or mother even? That means that we can have a relationship with God, not just a like God being an authoritative figure in our lives who tells us, you know, how we should be, but you know, that God is nurturing, protective, and comforting like a mother, God is a father, you know, Jesus refers to God as a father. And I think like the the parent image really encompasses who God is as creator, as a provider, and one who has authority in our lives. But I feel like I put this in the book because I wanted my audience to recognize that even though we don't fully know God in all of these ways, it doesn't mean that God was not present in our lives or that we're less faithful or less Christian. I think there's just so much more to know about God that we don't already know or nor have experienced yet. And, you know, it's going to take us a lifetime, (laughs) a lifetime of knowing and remembering these things about God. Sometimes I think we could feel like God doesn't feel loving to me. Does that mean that God doesn't love me? Or maybe I just don't have a relationship with God as well as other people do. You know, we're working through and discovering these things about God. And yeah, I think as we learn more about ourselves, even and understand our own experiences better, we can, we can also like understand God better as well. You mentioned undertaking what you called an introspective journey in trying to understand and heal your relationship with your father. And I wonder first, what did you learn about your parents and how did your relationship with God affect that journey? Yeah, a part of that journey, my father had actually passed away uh, the year after I graduated from college. And so sometime after I felt like I had lost 
uh, the opportunity to know my dad a lot better. Um, and so I, I wanted to reflect more on just my relationship with my dad and my perspective on him. And I remember there was a time where I, I realized that my parents' divorce had impacted me a lot more than I thought. I was pretty young when that happened. So I want to I wanna get to know my parents better. I didn't really know where to start. I was realizing that a lot of it was from my perspective. And my parents are both uh, refugees from Laos. Obviously, people don't come over from a different place, fleeing war and violence, and they're just you know absolutely okay, right? And it helped me to like recognize that my parents had very complicated lives. They're imperfect. A lot of brokenness in their lives. A lot of hurts that they've experienced, and that makes some sense into like how that might impact their relationship to us and how they're able to parent us, how they function here in the U.S. And I had to keep that in mind. It doesn't excuse them any harmful parenting that they might have done. Um, and for anyone else, trauma doesn't excuse that. But I think it helps us to, to recognize that our parents are people. And for me, I realized it was unfair for me to expect them to be these perfect parents. And also it helps me to realize that it's not, that if it seemed like they loved me any less, it wasn't because I was unworthy of it. It was because they're very broken people too. And they also need a healing in their own lives as well. And that that was a perspective that I needed to have. And that helped me to, to process ways where I wish my parents would have been better parents or, you know, things that I longed for my parents, I didn't receive from them, um, all of those things. Like it just helps me to, to able to accept that reality um, in my life. You have this great way of taking these abstract qualities mm-hmm. of God or of people as, as they were reflected in people. You came down as practical as food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, of course, I was really happy to see this section, God's love through food. But I wonder if you'd tell me about this, because because that is so concrete and physical and a daily necessity. But it seemed like that also helped you make a connection with your mother. Can, can you just talk about God's love as food? I mean, in Asian American circles, something we talk about is how food is just a way that we express love. Oftentimes, the, the question we, we say is, you know, have you eaten? I remember my mom would ask my youngest brother that all the time. And she would always like make sure he ate his food. (laughs) We knew parents like to ask that question. I was thinking, does God do that at all? You know, are there any examples? And I just did a little exploring and digging in scripture. And yeah, I came across a couple of examples where I felt like food were a part of the story. For me as an Asian American who comes from a background where, you know, our parents asked, have you eaten? How did that impact how I saw these stories? Oh, God expresses love in different ways. God doesn't have to say I love you, but looking specifically at the story of Elijah, where he's going through a lot, <laughs> uh, wanting God to take his life, but God's like, let me just give you some food, and I care about your well-being. You haven't eaten, you've been traveling, and I thought it was very beautiful. And I love how you used that phrase just a minute ago. You said, you know, have you eaten? me as an expression of love and care, but I'm thinking of times that I may have gone to God in prayer and been a little unhappy about something. And suddenly I have this image of him saying, have you eaten? <laughs> like, yeah, you should, exactly. You'll be in a better mood after you. And that could mean, have you spiritually been fed? Have you prepared yourself? I could think of that as a lot of different things. And because our parents, they say that because for them, they're like, you know, we're providing for you. We're serving you by giving you food. And that's an act of love. And I think that's what part of what God's communicating when God is providing a meal. It could be for nourishment just, or for enjoyment. And it's all of those things. And I think it's great to see God in that way because it helps me to think God wants me to enjoy food. God cares about my health and my well-being. I think that deepens what it means when we say we have this relationship with God. Because I think the hard thing is that like, I don't think I was like learning new things about God, but a lot of things that I heard about God was becoming more of a reality for me as I was even writing this book and thinking through these practical things. I just thought it was a beautiful way of exploring how God loves us and how God is in relationship with us. You said one of your hopes for the book was that readers would feel the power God has to renew and to transform us. And how have you feel that's happened in your life? What do you know or feel about God now that you didn't at the beginning of your journey? We didn't want to write a book where we we say something like, just have faith in Jesus and everything will be fine or life is messy, but if you just, you know, but we have Jesus, so we're fine. We're okay. You know, like we didn't really want to say that. I think part of this book is we wanted to make it known that, that we felt tension, that we were in this in-betweenness of hoping for things to be better, but also recognizing the reality of the world that people are messy. The world is messy. Life is messy, but we're, we're going to remain hopeful because we believe that God has been present, that God is working in our lives. 
And so part of writing this book was just looking into my life and thinking, what are the ways that God has been in my life, even in all the small ways, like recognizing that God has always been present, even though I didn't notice it. And that was very transformative for me as I think about what does it look like to live in tension? Because we're going to be living in tension for a long time. <laughs> Relationship with God and transformation is, you know, a life journey. And there's just so much more we don't know or have an experience. Part of what the hope is that, you know, that we recognize that, you know, God God is real. God is with us. And it doesn't always have to be those big God moments, uh, but even in the small ways, as we learn about ourselves and understand, you know, people around us more and be more open-minded to hearing other people's stories and journeys, we really get more and more pieces to this grander image of who God is. I hope that people will keep wondering and will keep wanting to be curious about who God is, even if we've been Christians for a long time. The last couple of years, I'm learning to just be okay about holding on to that tension and also still having faith, even though it doesn't seem like things are looking really great for us or we're hearing more and more bad news each day. Remaining hopeful because we remember, we recognize that God has always been present. That was La Tao from InterVarsity Press. La has her own podcast, Better Than Seven Sons, which addresses the lived experiences of Hmong in the U.S. We're grateful to La for exploring one way many of us have thought about God as a father or mother and how challenging that can be for anyone who hasn't had a very intimate relationship with their parents. We're discussing characteristics of the divine today, and we'd like to share three listener experiences with you next. We'll hear now from Evan Martin Kassler in Boston, Massachusetts, Lynn Christofferson in Lehigh, Utah, and Chanda Edwards in Telford, Tennessee. God is present. After spending years developing habits of quieting an overactive mind, I learned to be attentive and open to seeing, feeling, and hearing God in all the quiet moments of my life. I learned to stop thinking about God, about the Spirit, as something distant or detached with whom I could only have an abstract relationship and instead to start thinking about God as very close, very here, very now. As a little girl growing up in Indiana, I experienced sweet feelings whenever my parents or junior Sunday school teachers told stories from the scriptures and whenever I heard or sang spiritual songs. I looked forward to going to church with my family and enjoyed looking through our illustrated children's Bible at home. Though I couldn't exactly define the feelings these activities produced, they were gentle and pleasant. Years later, as a 13-year-old living in Utah, I was privileged to attend a special gathering with hundreds of teenage girls organized by seven or eight congregations from my church. We met at a large chapel on a Saturday morning, wearing our best dresses and using our best manners. For two hours, we attended workshops presented by excellent speakers whose presentations focused on our divine spiritual origins and the concept that we were known and loved by a very personal God. By the time the gathering concluded, I was filled to the brim with light and truth. I took my time walking home that day, and the spiritual light I had been feeling stayed with me. Once I reached my bedroom, I exchanged my dress for jeans and a casual shirt, but I was not inclined to read or play the piano or engage in sports as I generally did on Saturday afternoons. Instead, I made my way out the front door and sat on the porch steps in the sunshine, not wanting anything to chase away the lovely feelings I was experiencing. I don't remember how long I sat there, but I recall with perfect clarity the way holiness gently enveloped me, as tangible as the warm sunlight on my skin, I basked in the glow of a divine presence. Forty-six years have come and gone, yet when I close my eyes, I can still feel the spiritual power of those moments on the front porch of my girlhood home. In retrospect, I understand that I entered a new stage of spiritual growth that day as I became not just a passive spectator of spiritual things, but an active seeker of God's Word, striving to always have His Spirit with me. God is timeless. Having grown up in the church and hearing stories from the Bible, I thought prayer would be answered in an obvious way. Almost 30 years ago as a young adult, 
I began praying that God would show me my purpose. I was extremely active in church through camp and volunteer service projects, but year after year started to pass, and I still didn't feel like I had a definitive purpose. I was working in a preschool for children and medical staff next to the local hospital. One of the parents was in her medical residency, and I was the co-teacher for her one-year-old son's class. I worked hard at that preschool for seven years. The resident became a doctor and had three more children that all came through the preschool. The doctor was friendly with me and once even asked me to be her nanny. I said no. When I left the preschool, the next seven years was spent at a different job in the hospital system. I would still see the doctor regularly as she came through my department to complete patient records. We always exchanged friendly greetings. I had no idea what kind of doctor she was. One day, a friend told me about a job opening in a different department located in a building behind the hospital. She told me that she thought I would be really good at the job and suggested I apply for it. I wasn't looking for a job. I was perfectly happy in the current job. But encouragement from my aunt and my friend prompted me to call and then walk to speak with the manager of the open job. I walked into the building behind the hospital and had just met the manager and was talking to her when the doctor I had known for years walked in the office, looked at me, and said, you would be perfect for this job, and they offered it to me on the spot. I still didn't know if I wanted the job. After much prayer and consideration, though, I took the job. None of the jobs mentioned in my story are jobs that I would have chosen for myself back at that time when I was a young adult. Actually, any job I've ever had came to me by word of mouth from family, church, or work friends. If you had asked me as a young adult what kind of job I saw in the future, it would have been in the woods as a park ranger, camp manager, something in nature. This new job was as a secretary inside a medical lab office, an administrative assistant for 12 pathologist doctors. Pathologists are the ones who diagnose cancer. The week after I started the job, my mother's sister died from cancer. She lived in Maryland, and while our emotional relationship was a close one, I wasn't with her during her medical treatment process. I had no idea what it entailed. A few years go by at the pathology job, and out of the blue, my 30-year-old sister was diagnosed with cancer. The knowledge from my pathology job offered priceless guidance and resources for my sister, for my family, as we started our own cancer journey. A couple of years zoomed by, surgery, treatment, more surgery, more treatment, a brief remission, and then more cancer. Eventually, my sister became really sick. I found a place for us to live together so I could care for her. There was a cycle of her being sick, me taking care of her, her feeling better and kicking me out of the house. This repeated cycle went on for a while, and then it stopped. The day my sister died, a pastor friend called to pray with me. And as he prayed with me, I'd felt the answer to my young adult prayers wash over me. I had been where God intended for me to be all along, every job, every transition. All of this has been part of my definitive purpose, God's purpose. God is timeless. Thank you to our listeners for reaching out with their understanding of God in their life. Again, that was Evan Martin Katzler, Lynn Christofferson, and Chanda Edwards, read by our producer, Heather Bigley. Buddhist publisher Sam Burkholz had a near-death experience after a heart attack in his 60s. He found himself in hell. Although it might not look or sound like any hell you're familiar with, in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, hell does have its share of misery, but for the people there, learning, growth, and enlightenment are still possible. Sam shared what he experienced and heard in hell and how that taught him about the divine. What makes divinity or what makes the divine so wonderful is that it is so impermanent. Our life, you know, we're given this life. We know we're born. We know we die, but we lie about it. <laughs> we think that's for somebody else. Even if we say we believe in death, we really think it's for somebody else. The impermanence factor is uh, what makes things so precious, uh, what makes the present moment so, so absolutely precious. I find it funny now, but, you know, the experience was so extreme, so vivid, and uh, so real. But it was difficult for me to talk about it because what's wrong with me that I went to hell? How did I screw up so badly? At one point, I realized, oh, I have to write this down Others should know about this because I learned a lot. 
within even the pain of hell and all the suffering that uh, beings uh, in hell go through, there is uh, salvation in the middle of it. In other words, there is a Buddha. There is wakefulness. This Buddha taught or teaches by texture. The texture is the texture of fire and ice or water. Uh, touching the Buddha's hand, uh, the Buddha teaches through this the, the textures of fire and ice. And what he teaches is that uh, duality is an illusion, the duality of hot and cold, the duality of wakefulness and sleep and so on. So that, that's very specific, but he is gray and hard to see within the realm of hell. And that, I think, symbolizes people's inability when in great suffering to see clearly. And then we have the image of Jana Sophia, who exists in the flames. I use that name as the imagery of wisdom. And wisdom is always there. And wisdom is what liberates us from any realm, including the hell realm. So she is that which wakefulness is born through. If one can see her, if one can only see flames, if one can only see destruction through uh, one's unclear mind, then she can be of no help. But there she is. If we can actually see her and her beauty, the beauty of wisdom, we can be reborn through her into a wisdom being from a suffering being. That was my experience of seeing the divine. You talk about how you've always been optimistic, but do you feel like that this experience has had any kind of influence or did you change how you were approaching people or approaching situations? Yeah. yeah. Talk to us about that. If I look back, everything simplified for me. There was like a falling away of my ideas about judging people. I used to be a very judgmental person without realizing it, because that's just the way I was. Maybe not outwardly judgmental, but I had my little story about everybody I met. And I found that the experience scaled away my judgmental tendencies. And I could be with and see people, and not just people, animals, in a very different way than I ever had before, in a much simpler way, direct way. The main thing is maybe it made me a more, more caring person. I understand so much better the pain that the people experience, no matter what the look is on their face. This life is not easy for anybody. I can see that, and I don't have to judge in any way why a person is that way or another way. That's just the way they are. Hell is real. It's not just a concept, and it's not necessarily experienced in the way that I wrote it. People experience hell, their own personal hells, whether in this life, in their mind, or through their experience, and, how, and so on. The big thing is, it is not eternal. There is a way out. The Buddha of hell is there to lead one out. That was Sam Burkholz describing his experience with the divine. Sam published a graphic novel about the vision with art by Pema Tai called A Guided Tour of Hell, available from Shambhala Publications. While a vision of hell may seem brutal, Sam does leave us with some hope something our final guest, A. Helwa, finds as a cornerstone of her faith. We first heard of A. Helwa's writings from Link Outside, a Muslim prison ministry we featured in episode 107, which you can find on our website. A. Helwa's book, Secrets of Divine Love, has been adapted as a curriculum for those incarcerated to help them develop a relationship with God. I spoke with A. Helwa about the different metaphors and experiences that help her understand who God is. For many Americans, Islam isn't naturally associated with a loving God. We may have a preconception that Muslims believe in a cruel deity, perhaps because of the negative stereotypes we've developed about Islam in connection with extremist terrorism. But Islam calls God the most compassionate and merciful, a belief evident in my discussion with A. Helwa. So this experience, it was in um, Cappadocia in, in Turkey and sort of this like mountainous area. And I witnessed this woman 
up until that point, I'd, um, I went to Christian school most of my life. I'd been in mosques and synagogues and temples, but I had never seen someone pray to God from a place of becoming a prayer and offering themselves up to God. And I'm not sure that that makes sense in words. So it's kind of like um, when they put a baby in a mother's hands for the first time, the way her eyes meets the eyes of that baby and the way they're entranced. And if you watched it, you know you're watching something holy. She was empty of herself. And, you know, Islamic mysticism, this idea of becoming a mirror is becoming empty of everything that you are. So you're a reflection of the divine. I think we see this, Jesus doing this really beautifully, his life and his mission. It reminds me of a story, actually, of a, of a woman who was like washing clothes at a, at a river. And a man came and asked her for something, like anything. So she opened her bag and she pulled out bread. But right next to the bread she pulled out, there was this beautiful gem. And he said, can I have that? So she took the gem and she gave it to him with the bread. The man ecstatic walked, went back to the village as he walked back from this river. And he stopped and he turned around and he went to her and he's like, I want something better than this gem. And he returned the gem to her and he's like, I want what you have that allowed you to give it to me so freely. Whatever that is. That's priceless. Oh, that's a great story. So she's, she is demonstrating this aspect of love from the divine, this aspect of God or godliness. Did you have a relationship or a connection with who or what you thought God was before that moment, or was that the beginning of a journey? I grew up Muslim. And my parents were very devout and very practicing in terms of outward social justice and more in like terms of serving the poor. So I've always witnessed that growing up. I always had this fascination with Bible study and the Quran and these different traditions. I had read so many words about it and I'd had few experiences, but it wasn't until that moment that I realized that there's a whole knowing beyond language and not to be a perpetual Romy quoter, but he has another poem where he says, through the song of the nightingale, you may learn to compose. You still can't know what it sings to the rose. And for me, that was exactly it. I've read all these books, but what is that song? In your book, you talk about the vatia, which is a beginning of prayers. And it describes so many aspects of God. I wonder, would you mind reading that, uh, the translation there? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the Lord of mercy, the bestower of mercy, all praise and glory belongs to Allah, Lord of the world, the Lord of mercy, the bestower of mercy, master of the day of judgment. You alone we worship. You alone we ask for help. Guide us to the straight path, the way of those on whom you have bestowed your grace, not of those who earned your anger, nor of those who went astray. Thank you. So you're, you're talking to Allah, which I should mention to many of our listeners if they don't know, it's simply the word for God. And then you start with Lord of mercy, bestower of mercy. But you in this book really talk about divine love. And I wonder, did you find that there was a lack of understanding or that people did not connect with the love of God? There's an emphasis made surely on mercy, but a lot of times in translation, the word ar-Rahman, which is translated to mercy, it has elements in it that are beyond just mercy. It's care, compassion, love. And a lot of times those nuanced meanings don't get translated. And because mercy, it's this beautiful thing because actually it speaks to the human being's fallibility instantly. Because there's no mercy without being fallible. Because in order for someone to have mercy for you, you have to have done something that has hurt your soul or made a mistake or a sin. But sometimes I hesitate in using that word uh, just because of the perceptions that people have when saying that word. But really, it's just anytime we go against our own soul, that's where God's mercy is present. Love 
is the thing that embraces us in every moment. It's the air around us. It's the water inside of us. It's the thing that allows us to be alive. Existence is dependent on attraction. And divine love is that thing that holds us together, allows us to have an experience of the unity. Like we think we're this separate thing, but we're really these water molecules in the same ocean, you know? (laughs) In your book, Secrets of Divine Love, you talk about the many faces of Allah or attributes of the divine and how they serve to bless us or polish us. And have you experienced that polishing? Tell me about that. The polishing, it always comes with friction. A lot of times people reject love or reject kindness. It's also one of the reasons for most people it's easier to compliment others than it is to receive a compliment. So the divine qualities often, in my experience, you receive them in a polishing mode, which is creates a little bit of friction inside the parts of you that don't know who you truly are. So when God created us, he said, I created you for myself. And so by my love for you, you are enough. But we search the world looking desperately for love. It's kind of like, again, Rumi says, it's like you have a pearl necklace around your neck, but you're searching frantically for it. In our world, it might be, you know, sunglasses on your head. And you're like, oh, where are they? <laughs> you know, We've all the been phone. there. <laughs> right. Been on the phone before looking for my phone. You know, it's like this thing that you have. And so the divine qualities come and your gentleness as a host reflects to me God's quality of a latif, this, this subtlety, this gentleness, or a rauf, a kindness. In that moment, I have the opportunity to receive a divine quality that's being streamed through you by witnessing it. But if I don't receive it, then I'm the one that loses. And every single moment, every single person you see, every plant, every tree, every star, sea, and sky is reflecting something of the divine to you. He's with us in mysterious ways, perhaps, but the polishing for me is in every moment. It doesn't just happen in a mosque or a prayer or in the Quran or in books of Hadith sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. It's in every moment because regardless of what anyone believes, I believe God created them. So my belief in and of itself necessitates that I hold them with that honor. So we can read about love and that that's an aspect of God, but to feel that and to actually say this or that thought or experience is evidence of God's love to me, was there some point at which that became not just words on a page, not something theoretical, but actually something that reached inside you? Yes. For me, it happened when I lost my grandmother. And I remember I was going to the hospital and she was in doing well. And by the time I got there, she was gone. Like I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to her. And I remember holding her hands as the warmth in her body left. Her hands became like ice chips in a matter of moments. Mm. And by the time she was declared dead, I looked at her, I felt instant relief that that was not her. Even though it looks so, fam- she looks so familiar. It just felt like she parked a car in the driveway and then she got out of it. But in that moment, I felt this unbelievable outpouring of love. It felt like it broke my heart, but broke my heart open. Mm. And I was so grateful that God had sent me someone like her like a best friend, someone I loved so much and gave me so much time with her for whatever reason. And I, I see that as divine grace because my heart could have went the direction of like, why did this happen to me? It automatically showed me that every why I have is literally because God loves you. And I'm like, I always used to hear this, like, if, if I'm asking why, it's because God loves you. And I didn't understand why I felt that way because I was like, there are some whys. I definitely don't feel like it's because God loves me. But when I lost this person that meant the world to me, that's what came. It was just this unconditional love poured inside of me. And I realized that I can block love through my expectations of what things should be. But if I allow myself just enough space to say, hey, maybe there's a perception different than the one I have. 
different than the one that's created based on the past that I've lived and the way that I was raised and the veils of my lineage or culture or society. Maybe there's something limitless beyond my perception. Can I be open to that for a few moments? And so actually in moments that were horrifying throughout my life, I started to take them. There's a practice where you take that moment and you sort of hand it to God and just present with what happens in that interaction. Every single time I can't, I've never had a hundred percent on anything, but this experience, every single time there's this deep wisdom that returns back that says, I see what you don't see. I know what you don't know. I know the past, present, and future perfectly. You have an imperfect perception of the past, a limited perception of the present, and you don't even know the future. For me, it always was this with the break. And that, you know, I know we're like doing a roomy poetry session, but he says it perfectly when he says, where there are ruins, there is treasure. Because where you feel ruined, you are aware of your neediness for God. And in that moment, that's the greatest treasure because it connects you with the divine. Today, we took quite a journey, exploring how different people think about God. You might have heard familiar concepts, some brand new, but we've gathered a series of metaphors that might be helpful in the future, whether that's of a train or a musk deer, a woman and her newborn, a parent and nurturer, a mirror. We hope today's episode helped you think of different ways you experience God and what that's taught you about who God is and who you are in relationship to God. And we hope you're inspired to share your own stories about God with people important in your lives. Our episode was produced by Heather Bigley and Peter Ellison with engineering and editing from Dan Phillips. We'd like to thank Abhishek Ghosh, Latau, Evan Martin Katzler, Lynn Christofferson, Chanda Edwards, Sam Burkholz, and A. Helwa for sharing their experiences of the divine. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InGoodFaithPod. And our Facebook page is at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.